guess I was about 29. So I've gone from what you call nowadays orthorexia, which is just severe restriction of food, over-exercising. And the irony was I looked fantastic and I got a lot of attention for it. Everyone was asking me to personal train them and guys were giving me, me attention. So everything was quote-unquote working because I, I was just felt so alone and I just wanted someone to say, wow, you're amazing. You know, you look great. So I was getting that. Yeah. But it was this precarious position because if I would just eat something that I wasn't meant to or not get it exercise in, I would, I would just think my world was crumbling. So it was kind of like being on this very, very small pedestal. And I was so scared to get kicked off. What is up, beautiful people? I am Lachlan Samuel, and this is the Open Up Podcast, the show that is making mental health mainstream. The way we do that is we interview people about the deepest, darkest, most traumatic and challenging moments and periods of their life. We go over what they went through, how they overcome it, any tips, tools and tactics that they use to do so, any lessons that they've taken away from that period in their life, and then where they're at now, how they've turned that pain into purpose. All I can say is that I'm just truly, truly grateful. And I absolutely believe that together, me and you, and the sharing of these stories, we will make mental health mainstream. Let's go! Welcome back to the Open Up Podcast, everyone, into episode 99 with confidence expert, Dr. Kat. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm loving this spot. <laughs> it's awesome. It is amazing, and I'm grateful to have a short lap and size cafe and barbershop down here in Como in South Perth. Super grateful. Um, first question straight off the bat, it's a little bit of a deep one. It's... How would you describe the way that you view yourself as a woman and or human? Am I allowed to swear? Yes. Fucking fabulous. <laughs> That's I how I see myself. And it's, it's funny. I mean, it's taken me 41 years to say that. And, and the funny thing is, is that the more women I meet, the more I realize is that we're so scared to say something like that. Yes. Because we just think everyone watching is going to say, what an egotistical bitch. But the fact of the matter is, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. So I'm just gonna roll with it. I, you know what? I've worked damn hard to be able to say that. So yes, I'm effing fabulous. Well, I think with that statement, I can understand why you're a confidence expert. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I gotta walk the walk and talk the talk, or talk the talk and walk the walk, whatever way you say it. So yeah, absolutely. All right, so. Your story pretty much starts in childhood, so we're just going to dive straight in and you yeah. can walk us through it from there. Absolutely. So everything that I do today is based on past experience, and I'm sure similar to what you're doing and similar to a lot of people, I think it just makes it more authentic and more real. So uh, this is a very long story short. The long version requires copious amounts of alcohol and time <laughs> and so forth. So, uh, And this is after a lot of therapy to realize this. It's not like just that I woke up one day, I'm like, oh, this is my past and this is the meaning of it and I'm good. So the, the major sort of spark or catalyst was my parents separated and that's when I sort of lost my identity and I was living in France at the time. So I'm originally from Canada. My father was on sabbatical. And so I was in this weird spot, weird languages, weird culture, and I didn't really know who I was. 
came back to Canada and I was still trying to find myself. And at the time when you're a kid, you don't realize that whatever's going around you is not your fault. You just think that this stuff is going on, therefore it must be because of me, yeah. because we're, we're kind of sponges to that. So I think I took a lot of stuff in, internally and I self-blamed a lot. Um, when I hit about 12 or 13 at the time in high school, anorexia was, was cool. So the goal was actually to eat so little that you fainted. Wow. And I'll always remember there was this one girl, Chrissy Fowler, and she fainted at school. And I remember being so jealous of her because I love food. I mean, I'd spent a year in France and everything is around sex and food. And I was too young to worry about the sex part. So I just love food. So... You know, here I was in this precarious situation. I didn't know who I was, and I was just looking around me to try to figure out, okay, who should I become? Who should I become when I grow up? So that that was my first step into disordered eating. I then got caught up in the wrong crowd, lots of drugs and so forth. And I was only 14, 15 when this started happening. Started drinking, going to school drunk, started selling drugs, and my mom knew I was in this precarious position uh, so we ended up moving to Italy to Rome Italy which on the outset sounds amazing and it was but in Italy there's no drinking age drugs were rampant so I just got caught up in the wrong crowd again my mum ended up coming back with her husband back to Canada that is and I stayed in boarding school and that's really when I started to flourish uh, but before then, I was dating a guy, and he was uh, violent, physically violent. He hit me a couple of times. And I remember once, I mean, I was only 16 and trying to, 16 or 17, trying to figure this out. And I, I got hit, and I hit the ground, marble, uh, marble ground, and my whole jaw was bruised. And I remember that no one really brought it up except for one of my friends. And he yeah. said, you know, what, what went on? But it was sort of like... Uh, we don't know how to talk to you about it or anything like that. So it was sort of brushed under the carpet. Nevertheless, after Italy, I ended up doing really well in school. Uh, despite all this, I started to flourish, came back to Canada, moved to Toronto, which is a massive city. And I love food, but I also had the inclination that maybe I should go to school. So I started at the University of Toronto in Business 101 in Italian. I mean, like random subjects. But I also got a job at this amazing restaurant. It was like the restaurant of Toronto. And I don't know if you've ever worked in the restaurant industry, but it's, yeah, it's very fast paced. And if you want to stay, stay away from drugs, alcohol, and all that kind of stuff, that's not the way to go. So I was still very young, I was 18, and they made me pastry chef of this massive restaurant. So I had this immense responsibility, was growing up extremely quickly. Uh, and still had no idea who I was. So it was still this balance of you know, disordered eating and back and forth. Speed things up, met a guy, ended up opening up my own restaurant and catering business. That went bankrupt for a quarter million dollars. After that, my parents always said, we'll always pay for your school, so why don't you just give it a try? Ended up getting bursaries and scholarships and ended up getting stuck there for 10 years. And throughout all this time, uh, I was still dealing with severe mental health issues, severe depression, anxiety, but it wasn't spoke about back then. Yeah. You know, we didn't have social media, so you just think you're, you're very insulated to everything, and you just self-blame all the time. 
So during this time, I was suicidal for the second time in my life. The, the first time I attempted, um, uh, obviously, unsuccessfully suicide was when I was 15. I took a half bottle of aspirin. Wow. And Do you remember what? I just felt very alone. Felt very, very alone. And I, and I still remember that feeling, and it's that feeling that that really catalyzes what I do every day because I know there are so many people out there that struggle with these thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and they self-blame. Yeah. And that's just so incredibly unfair. And it's, it's not about suppressing those emotions. It's about understanding them and, and how can we move forward from that. Um, and, but I think really this feeling of feeling alone is, is the main thing. And that's, again, what happened when I was about, um, I guess I was about 29. So I'd gone from what you call nowadays orthorexia, which is just severe restriction of food, over-exercising. And the irony was I looked fantastic, and I got a lot of attention for it. Everyone was asking me to personal train them, and guys were giving me, me attention. So everything was, quote-unquote, working because I, I was just felt so alone and I just wanted someone to say, wow, you're amazing. You know, you look great. So I was getting that, but it was this precarious position because if I would just eat something that I wasn't meant to or not get it exercise in, I would, I would just think my world was crumbling. So it was kind of like being on this very, very small pedestal and I was so scared to get kicked off. Um, so I remember once I went from this severe restriction, restriction into binge eating. And I remember this one time I was going to um, uh, the uh, basically Friday night dinner at my, my grandparents and I binge all day and I remember driving up to their place just saying, just driving to a telephone pole because at least even if you don't die, at least you'll be hospitalized and that will prevent you from eating. And I just remember all the telephone poles going by. I'm like, this one, this one, do it, do it, do it. Something obviously prevented me from doing that, and and I really do think it's my father. My father and I have an extremely close relationship, and and I always thought I would never do that because that would kill my father, and I would never do that. Uh, nevertheless, so blah 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 blah. I ended up coming out here on scholarship to do my PhD. Well, that was the um, third time I was suicidal because I was thirty, single. You know, everyone else was, everyone else, their life looked amazing. They had the partners, they had the kids, they had the job, they had the this and that. And I kept on saying, well, why can't I meet a guy? Why are all the guys these dicks that just like, you know, mess around on me and this and that? And one day I was talking to a friend and he said, listen, you know, you're the common denominator in all this. Don't you realize that? And it kind of felt like, in the movies, like, you know, when they do the slow motion punches and like, whoa, like that, that's what it felt like. It, it felt like a punch in the stomach, slap in the face, and they, and, and essentially like, it's your fault. And hearing that, although it was extremely painful, was one of the catalysts to push me forward into what I do today. But um, after that, I ended up getting on a plane, crying the entire way, went to go see my mom and binge the entire way. So it, it's, it wasn't just a, a light switch. I want people to understand that. It was a shitload of therapy after that. Uh, and then essentially, I finished my doctorate and you know, the Michelle Bridges, the Ashley Barnes were out there. They were making all this money, helping people lose weight and get the body they want. I was thinking, here I am, in the best shape of my life. I trained Olympic athletes, so hey, I'm going to make the money, right? 
but something felt wrong. I just felt like a fraud because here I was promoting this idea that, hey, eat the kale, do the squats, you'll get the body and you'll be happy when that's bullshit. So from a business perspective, that was a great choice, you know, sell the dream. But from a moral choice, I couldn't do it. So ever since then, I've been literally trying to figure out what the hell do I represent because I just couldn't figure it out. It's, a, it's Health and wellness is an extremely complex subject and to try to distill that into a single sales message is impossible. So at the end of the day, I just say, you know what, I'm giving up. I want to work with people and a person. How can I help you? Because how I help you is going to be different than him, her, etc. We have to start listening to people's individual stories because trying to solve everyone's problems using the same solution is not going to get us everywhere. People need to feel less alone, and the only way to do that is by listening to them. Yeah. Actually, I told you, I can talk underwater. No, so you gotta good. That. I love it. <laughs> and one of the important distinctions within that, and you talking about having this general, broad sales message, is that usually they have a product that they want to push on people and so they'll tap into what people are insecure about mm-hmm. and play on that whether or not their product actually helps mm-hmm. and it's it's a cool contrast to see that morality coming through when you're unwilling to do that unwilling to put people in that position to receive that sort of service from you mm-hmm. and make that money off them in that way when you were someone who wanted to, I guess, injure yourself so that you wouldn't eat. Yep. It's like so much respect for the people around you and the people that you might impact, but mm. like a severe lack of self-respect and self-love. It's it's a hard balance because, as Oprah says, you can't help people if you're broke. Yeah. So it's I'm still trying to find that balance of, uh, I guess, like still having a successful business where I charge people enough to keep my business going. But then I hear these stories. I mean, like last night I had this beautiful lady message me that she had just, her partner had just broken up with her completely from left field. And it's these kind of messages that it's like 10 o'clock at night. And I, I can't just say, you know, sorry, do what you can. Yeah. And it's that kind of stuff that it's it's hard. It's hard. And I think everyone in this field sort of understands that it's it's a very precarious balance between protecting your own self-care, but also understanding that if you were in that position, would you want someone to reach out and say, don't worry, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. You know? I think I learned that the hard way when I started the podcast. Obviously, we started with most of our stories being around suicide, with that being such a prevalent topic, especially in mainstream media, um, that I had people reaching out pretty much saying, look, bro, I'm going to kill myself. Can you help me? And then I had this, I felt this need or this compulsion to be the saviour. And then being a saviour, if there's always that anxiety around letting someone down, yeah, what if? Yeah, and then if someone doesn't vibe with you, if they don't take your advice or, or words on board, mm-hmm. then you feel like a failure. Absolutely. I mean, but a lot of research shows that if a person is going to suicide, they, they will. Yeah. Um, but again, that's 
you know, at the end of the day, we all want to be saviors. And uh, I, I think that's, that's one of the things that when I went back to school to do my postgraduate degree, and that's, that's the reason why I did it, because after my PhD, I was doing one-on-one consulting, and I think it's sort of like the Dunning-Kruger effect. The more you know, the more you realize you know absolutely nothing. And that's where, that's where my confidence is actually not great, because when, when I start going, delving into these areas, I'm thinking, there's so much I don't know. And that's why I refer, I would say, 95% of my clients forward to uh, a psychologist, actually, that's in coma. Um, but I think the main thing that we're seeing specifically in mental health is that there's a lot of people that are helping, but a lot of people that need to know that they have limitations. Yes. And that's, I think, where there's some questions to be raised about, you know, this. It, it's great that mental health is being spoken about, but we have to be very cautious. Yes, and that's what I learned the hard way, yeah. is trying to be that saviour. I had mm-hmm. maybe three breakdowns, which led to me being suicidal or depressed mm-hmm. and suicidal myself. And through that, through going through that fire, I realised that I have to give up this idea of saving everyone. Yes, I might be able to help one or two, mm-hmm. but the people that I'm don't have the tools to help. It's okay to be Robin in that situation. You don't always have to be Batman. You can forward someone on. Um, Brilliant. That's, Good analogy. Yeah, and it's that's what Open Up's become. That's what I envision Open Up being, apart from Mental Health Media Group, is a uh, referral service almost, because yeah. I don't see us as the help. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, I mean, I think there needs to be funding, 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 you know, there needs to be more funding around this, but people underestimate the power of just going to meet someone new. I mean, every month I hold a free walk and talk. Um, essentially, the analogy is, it's like, well, I think everyone holds in farts. Thoughts are like farts. You hold them in. And it's not good to hold them in. You know, you get cramps, you feel uncomfortable, so uh, on the second Sunday of every month, you don't have to sign up, we just meet in Seth Perth, go for a walk, fart out anything on your mind, and then come in. And I've been running this for three and a half years. And sometimes my first walk, I have one person show up. And then sometimes I have 25 people show up. You don't have to talk, but just making that first step, you know, both in the literal and figurative sense, doing this walk and talk, that's that's what, you know, people, and anyone can start these walk and talks, you know? That's some, something small. For someone who's in a position where they feel, I guess, alone or misunderstood, what would you say to someone like that who's anxious about turning up to a walk and talk like that? I, I would say 95% of the people that come actually message me about a year after hearing about it and saying, I've always wanted to come, but I'm really anxious. And then I'll say to them, everyone is. And then it'll still take them a good half a year to actually come. So I think people have to understand it's it's scary because it's probably pushing them out of their comfort zone. And that's where you have to get to to catalyze a change. Yeah. So as I always say to someone, it's very difficult to change your mindset with the same mindset that got you into that spot. So at the end of the day, it's going to be that you need to do something uncomfortable to make the change. Yeah. You know, it's, you can't just sit at home and like be eating the haggadahs and the cookies and be like, yeah, you know, tomorrow I just have a feeling I'm going to wake up and everything's going to be better. I tried that. I tried the old waiting method and you're staying in my comfort zone and thinking, yeah, everything's going to change. I'm going to meet like a 
Prince Charming, you know, in my bedroom, and he's just going to come in, and everything's going to be great, and someone's just going to, you know, call me and offer me a job, and my life's going to, nah. Damn it, didn't work. So I had to do it the uncomfortable way. But And that's, that's part of the brain's responsibility, is to keep us in a state that we feel is safe, whether mm-hmm. safe to us or our normal is being anxious or not. Whether that is like negative, toxic, or destructive, that's what the brain's there to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to also understand that biologically we're all different. You know, some people are more anxious than others. I mean, there's, I won't go into the hordes of research even on the microbiome that just your gut bacteria can influence how anxious you are. Yeah. So, but we'll, we'll leave that there because that's a major rabbit hole. I told you, tangents. Yeah, you don't want me starting to talk about poo and farts and this and that because I'll just keep on talking. Uh, I would love that, but I know other people wouldn't. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of questions about your story and then we can move on to what you're doing now. In speaking about the separation with your parents, you said you took a lot of, I guess, the responsibility on. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding what was going on around you. Do you remember the story you told yourself back then? I think it was less responsibility and more blame. Okay. I, was, I was thinking, and, and of course this is, you know, 30 plus years ago, but I think it was more the mindset of, I'm seeing this stuff happen, it must be because of me. And and the example that I always use is like, let's say little Johnny is at the kitchen table doing his homework, and every day his father comes home at 5.30, ruffles his hair and says, hey, hello, Johnny, how's your day? And then one day he comes home, slams the door, walks right by Johnny, and goes and pours himself a drink. Johnny doesn't think, oh, he must have had a really bad day at work. I'm just going to give him some time to cool down. No, he thinks, oh, my God, I wonder, I wonder what I did. I must have done something wrong. So that's sort of, I believe, looking back, what my mindset was. Uh, especially because I was a you know, high-achieving student and a perfectionist, so like everything has to be in place and A-plus and this and that. So if things weren't perfect in my world, I'd blame myself. So perhaps the message I was telling myself is, you must not be good enough because this, all this shit is happening, so it must be because of you. And so moving, so, moving forward, the story was always... Well, if that guy doesn't like you, you must be just not good enough. Yes. So you, maybe you need to be skinnier, maybe you need to be prettier, maybe you need to be smarter. And I was never enough. So it was just this constant, you know, 35 years worth of, I should be doing better. And that's why, you know, my opening statement is, I'm fucking fabulous. It's it's kind of like you, you fake it till, till you are it. Yeah. And, and that's why everything I do is about training the brain so you build the confidence. It's like, you know, you go to the gym and you do the bicep curls. If you go into the gym once and you do one bicep curl and just walk out and be like, yo, I'm stacked now, that's not going to happen, right? So every single day, you have to fight those thoughts of I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough when you look in the mirror and say, I'm the shit, actually. And even if you don't believe it, eventually you will. Yeah. So everyone has that you know, that story is you have to train yourself to stop listening to that story and create the story that you want to have for the rest of your life. That's amazing. Please, you're hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. Uh, Do you feel like that story that you were consistently telling yourself is the reason that you were the common denominator in those relationships? 
overall, yes. Uh, I think it's definitely very complex. Um, I think because I perhaps wasn't getting the love that I needed at home, not to say that my parents were loving, they're, they're amazing, but I think, I guess at the end of the day, when you're in a, in a bad situation, sometimes you don't make the best decisions. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, where my parents were at. You know, sometimes when you're in this yucky situation, perhaps you might not think of the people that you, you, you know, need a bit of caring. So I think the, now I've completely lost the train of thought. Your question was? Um, being the common denominator. Common denominator, thank you. Um, so I think because of that, moving forward, I always thought I had to fix situations. Wow. So... Examples of this is um, for a long time, it's interesting, I was speaking to someone about this, that for a long time I would actually try to steal, if you will, married, married guys, married men, because I was thinking if I can get them to love me, that means that I'm good enough for them to leave their wife or leave their partner and come to me. Like that's how I was in thinking that I had to be so amazing to compensate for the fact that I was not amazing and I wasn't the center of attention and I wasn't the most important person. It was always about me, 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 me. All the attention needs to be on me. Well, yeah. it's a horrible place to be in. It is, but you know what? It is what it is and learn from it. And you know, for God knows how many years, I just woke up cringing cringing and disgusted at the person I was, like literally disgusted. At the end of the day, you can't change it. Yep. You can't. I was a, I was a shitty person. I was an asshole. I was an asshole to friends. And I, I can't, I can't change that. I've tried to, you know, I've tried to apologize to a lot of people, but at the end of the day, sometimes you make shitty decisions when you're in a shitty situation. I think that's a good segue into how how did you then work through all of that? I think you said therapy. on your way, on your way out, loads of therapy. That guy, <laughs> one of your friends, gave you like a gut punch or a sucker yeah. punch. Mm -hmm. um, made you realize that you were the common denominator in all these situations. Mm -hmm. So therapy, what sort of therapy? And it's basically talk therapy. I, I was really fortunate when I was at uh, the University of WA, Western Australia, that they had a fantastic um, psychology department. And for students, you can get actually treatment, uh, sets of eight, for only $15 an hour. I mean, it was incredible. It was, it was with students that were in training. But at the end of the day, talk therapy is mostly for the relationship and the trust. And I just happened to have... Uh, he was actually a prof. I don't know why I had him. Perhaps maybe I was like that hard case that no one wanted to touch. Um, but the funny thing is, is that we just clicked. And it was funny because he was like six foot four tall bald dude and like we couldn't be any more different like he had no background in eating disorders or anything like that but we just clicked but I think also because I was finally in this in in the mindset of I have to do something if I'm going to change yeah you know like, I have to stop blaming like oh it was because of you because of you because of my parents because of this and that it wasn't because of them it was at the end of the day it's my choice so it was I can't, I can't tell people or you can't underestimate the power of talk therapy. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? That you just talk. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, everyone talks. And so how could that help? 
And I was, because I was a physiologist, I was like, what is this psychology bullshit? I'm like, I'm not into this hippie stuff where I'm not going to talk about my feelings. And I'm like, what is that going to do? So I was a non-believer. But all my friends were saying, you really, you need help. Go, go, go. Um, and because I was just such in a bad place, I was like, you know what? I got to try something. Had you been open to being that vulnerable before? No, so I had tried to go to therapy uh, back in Canada, and I think partially I wasn't in the mindset because I was I was still in the I got this. Yeah. Everyone else is wrong. I'm right because I'm so amazing. People have not figured that out yet, and I was like, you know, I need to eat this way. I need to starve myself and overexercise and run on broken bones and come home with bloody feet and like broken nails and stuff like that because of running so much. No, no, this is how it should be. And so you got to get to that point. It's like, you know, the analogy, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yep. And that's the thing. I was just like the horse that didn't want to drink. And then, you know, after that gut punch, I was like, you know what? Maybe, maybe. It's partially my fault. Yeah, to go from there. But after that, it was, it, it sort of, you have to be open to doing things differently. Yeah. You know, if you, it's definition of insanity, you're doing the same thing, blah, 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 blah. And, and at the end of the day, you sort of have to relearn how to live. You have to relearn how to really digest your thoughts and be like, is that really how I want to think about myself? Is that really the decision that I want to make for my life? And it wasn't everyone's like, oh, it sounds like such an amazing light bulb moment. I'm like, there was no light bulbs anywhere. There was dimmer switches. It was like one day I was like, I see the light. And then the next day it was complete darkness. And it was like back and forth. And still nowadays, I really, yesterday I spent the day in a freaking bathrobe, sulking. You know, you have one of those shitty days. But the only way to appreciate the sunny days is to have those shitty days. Yeah. You know? Um, speaking about you were this person who woke up cringing about who you were in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming this is a problem for a lot of people who have been in a similar situation. I know I went through about 10 years of hating myself for being a cheating narcissist, Mm -hmm. which obviously impacted the way that I interacted with women. And it's played a major role, I feel, in me sabotaging close relationships, being someone who's only had like one or two really close friends Mm -hmm. at a time because I felt like I didn't deserve to have that level of friendship or a wide friend group. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you go about, I guess, that process of seeking forgiveness for yourself or forgiving yourself? Yeah, no, it's such an important part and it says to me that, that you're continuing to try to do that. I, I think it's going to be something that we all have to do until we're, we're one foot in the coffin. Uh, I think that the main thing is, is funnily enough, it's using mindfulness. And I remember one of my good colleagues and good friends in um, during my doctorate was doing mindfulness in sport and she sort of introduced this concept and I'm like, oh god, this hippie bullshit again. And like she was describing it to me when she learned it, like that they, they were taught how to look at a raisin and look at the wrinkles. I was like, just fucking eat the raisin. Who cares? So I was really, again, like, no, I'm fine, this and that. But the, I guess I developed my own way of of using mindfulness and I think everyone has their own method and it's just a special way of, of paying attention to your thoughts and that was really the technique that I use to go from 
I was such a crap person to hold on. What am I really feeling here? And at the end of the day, I felt ashamed. I felt extremely ashamed at my past and angry, but mostly ashamed. And using mindfulness, I could slow down those thoughts because those feelings of shame and anger were kind of like emotions, like an octopus on your face. Like you can't see anything, you can't move anywhere. So mindfulness just allows your emotions to be pushed away from you so you can look at them a bit clearer yeah. and slow down. Like, okay, why do I feel ashamed? I feel ashamed because I was a you know, yucky person. I also feel scared because I might be alone forever. And I just want someone to love me and love me for who I am. And again, this is after years and years sort of pushing those feelings away and saying, what is really bothering me? What's really going on here? And that's how I was able to move from, I was a shitty person to, yes, I was a shitty person, but how can I use that to be a better person moving on? Yeah. So it's just a continued sentence. It's like a shift in perspective. You know, I feel there's a parallel between that mindfulness and, um, in a sense, detaching from your thoughts so you have time to yeah. analyze and assess whether they're true or whether it's just a story you've created to That's explain it. the situation. Parallel between that and you finally going into the talk therapy, mm-hmm. which is like a chance for you to actually speak what you're thinking and therefore like detach from it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, it's kind of like a big bowl of spaghetti. Your thoughts are just everywhere. You know, they're just crawling everywhere, and it just sort of puts everything in place. It slows things down, and and I think there's still a stigma going to speak to someone nowadays, but thankfully it's getting less and less. Like back home in the states, it's like, yo, dog, I went to my therapist this week, and you wouldn't believe what she said. And here it's like, I went to my therapist. You know, still very like, I'm not crazy, but you know, so it's still we gotta get to that. Yep. You know what my therapist said. It means you're broken here. Yeah. That's the stereotype anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I love these things, you know, are you man enough? Like are you man enough to actually you know, put your hand up and say I need help? I love those kind of, you know, the slogans and the and those those new sort of things that are coming out. I think they're great. All right. Let's get to what you're doing now. Yes. Confidence expert. Yes, and a lot of shoe shopping. But we'll, we'll leave that aside for the time being. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I started as a, a body confidence expert, but at the end of the day, I, I, I felt like a bit of a dick because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a size six. And yes, I've dealt with severe body image issues, like to the point of I've called, you know, I've called surgeons in the past to get liposuction. I mean, yeah, oh, like, um, but at the end of the day, I am the stereotypical norm, if you will, of body shape. So who am I to say to someone who might be overweight, who might have been insulted by people or their parents, who am I to sort of tell them how to feel? And I don't think I have that right. What I can do is help them with their thoughts. I can't help them with the fact that society is basically an asshole saying that they're not good enough. I can't help the fact that, you know, we have these you know, skinny lollipops and stuff like that. I'm doing my best to stop it. But that's why I sort of changed into confidence because what I can do is help a person train their brain. I'm using that as an analogy. Uh, obviously, you don't like train your brain, but train your brain to build your confidence. 
And I, I use two specific methods. The first one is science-based education. So I truly believe that education is such a powerful tool to help people change. Because the more you know, the less you fear. The less you fear, the more you grow. That's how it works. Anyone who says it doesn't work that way can talk to me. Right? <laughs> That's how it works. Second thing is social connection, which is exactly what you're doing. Start the conversation. Have someone to be like, you know what, I get you. I've been there. I understand what you're going through. I can't help you, but I can listen to you. You know, that kind of thing. And that's really what I do now. And she shop. And she shop. And she shop. And saying that you, I guess, went through this period of cultivating a level of mindfulness where you could detach and uh, look at your thoughts. What were some of the lessons that came through for you? from some of the stories that you told yourself throughout your life? Mm -hmm. One of of the main lessons is um, responding versus reacting. So it's very easy, for example, when someone says, uh, you know, something curt to you or something, or maybe you get like, you know, a nasty email from someone, it's very easy to just be like, well, I mean, you are, it's very easy to react. So again, using mindfulness, you can slow down and think, okay, I wonder what what's happening in their world right now. You know, maybe their dog just died or something like that. They're taking it out on me. That's the main thing is understanding that I'm not the only person on earth. Like it's not Catherine and the world. It's not like that. It's the world we are. We have to see things from different perspectives. That was the biggest lesson I've learned is to understand that I have to think about others as well when it comes to me. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess there's not too much left for us to cover, but we'll wrap up with a few questions. Mm-hmm. Knowing everything that you've been through, the separation while you were young, uh, the eating disorders, the drugs and alcohols, the I guess destructive or toxic relationships, depression, suicidality, and then knowing the sort of person you are now throughout uh, the entirety of this interview, you seem very outgoing and very <laughs> funny, and you seem like someone. Oh, do go on. <laughs> you seem like you're you're living on purpose. What would you say the quality of your life is like now? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I. I have to, I've lived a very blessed life. Uh, I think a lot of that is perspective. I don't think, you know, I don't wake up and everything is like laid out for me and I don't have someone like wiping my ass and stuff like that. It's like, it's not, it's, uh, but at the end of the day, I think it's just every day, every day I wake up with one mantra and it's my life, my responsibility. Everything that happens to me, my choice in coming today, my choice in being open today, that's my responsibility. I made a choice to come here today, and I don't know where this is going to lead. Or I could have just called up and said, you know, I'm just sort of not feeling well today. We make choices every single day. Yeah. So my question to everyone is, what choices do you want to make? Because what choice do you want to have for the rest of your life? What kind of life do you want to have? It's up to, it's up to people. That's tough. And when you take responsibility of your life, you don't leave the way that you live your life in the hands of other people. That's correct. We can continue to blame others, but all that does is put energy out. Yeah. So I can say, you know, this, that, and that, that, or I can say, you know what, okay, how can I look at this situation differently? And I mean, a great book for people to, to read is uh, by Viktor Frankl. 
he's um, he's passed, uh, but he was an incredible uh, psychiatrist during the Holocaust. And the book is called The Meaning of Life, I believe. Uh, sorry, Man's Search for Meaning. Nevertheless, he wrote about his experience in the war camps in the Holocaust. And he basically said, between a stimulus and response, there is a space. And within that space lies your freedom. Meaning that in that pause, you can decide whether you look at the situation from a really crappy point of view or a good point of view. And that's why I use the analogy of a horse. It's like life is like a horse. You can choose whether you look at it from the end where all the shit comes out or the nose end. Still gonna be the same horse. And that's sort of you know, with my clients. I don't I don't say that, you know, their partner's gonna take out the garbage and remember the mill, their kids are not gonna be you know, stopping the spawns of Satan, they're still going to be dicks because they're kids. I was a dick, everyone's a dick, you know, that kind of thing. How do you look at the situation differently? If you're stuck in traffic, can you start not complaining about it? Can you start looking at it differently? We only have one life, and it can go away like that. Like that. That's it. If you, and if you choose to look at everything negatively, you just perpetuate negativity. And That's it. That's it. It's a choice. It's powerful. And I understand now why people keep reaching out to me to talk to you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Very, uh, very kind. What have you added to or removed from your life to improve the quality of it? Hmm. I know I keep on going back to shoe shopping, but there's a reason behind that. So I've always loved shoes. And the reason why I love shoes is because when I was going through my severe body image issues, uh, and I think everyone will understand this, no matter how yucky you're feeling about your body a shoe still fits and I used to be I, I used to be in the mindset is I don't deserve these shoes you're not good enough to have these shoes and I think that's why today again my obsession with shoes is just a bit too much I am trying to control it but I love shoes and I love them because and in particular this one designer his name is Louboutin Christian Louboutin and his reasoning for the designs behind the shoes is that he believes that the shoe is the extension of the female strength. And I just love that. Because when you wear high heels, I don't know if you ever have, but if you do, you'll understand that, especially being, I mean, I'm five foot nothing. When I put on a pair of shoes and with a pair of heels, I just feel fantastic. And I think that's why I always joke about shoes, but there's there's something about them that just makes me realize I've come a long way. Because now now I realize I do deserve those pair of shoes. Whereas before I was in the mindset of no no, they're not enough for you. You shouldn't you don't you shouldn't wear them. I agree. You yeah. definitely do deserve them and I probably need to try heels because for the first time in my life I actually uh, brought awareness to my height measured myself and I'm not six foot like I thought my entire life. Oh, which really? was like a gut punch. <laughs> I'm five ten. It hurt so much. Height uh, <laughs> is just a number. Yeah. It's just a number. Yeah. Um, Alright. Anything you've removed from your life to improve the quality of it? Uh, re- removed is basically again my my negative mindset. Again, uh, I think with doing that, you naturally remove other things in your life, um, but you don't really realize that you're doing. Um, because at the end of the day, traffic's still going to be there. People that you know, I remember once getting this email from someone um, saying, "Go back to Canada, you skinny anorexic bitch." Well, 
I, I can't prevent those emails from coming in. What I can do is remove my negativity around that. Again, going back from you know reacting versus response, and I can remove my reaction, and I can choose to respond to that. So for me, it's more about adding, adding positivity rather than removing stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. And does that response help when people call you American? <laughs> Don't call your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I get that all the time. Yeah. I all the time. People think I'm from Jersey. I'm like, yo, I'm from the Bronx. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're amazing. Uh, last question. Yeah. If you had the chance to put a message on a billboard somewhere where you know thousands of people would see it every day, what would that message be? It's not your fault. Wow. Mm. How did that come out so fast? That never happens. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it just, I think after working with hundreds and hundreds of people, better cry. Um, I, I just think about a lot of my clients and myself is that I think a lot of people blame themselves and they shouldn't. They've been through really, really tough stuff. And I think just having that message is kind of like just sending a little hug to them saying, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. It's not your fault. You'll get through it. That's amazing. And I'm certain that'll mean something different to everyone who reads it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, to wrap up, I just want to acknowledge you first of all for making time for this and knowing the position you're in and the people that you're helping. I can imagine that your time is valuable. And so for you turning up to this to help me make mental health mainstream means the world to me. Um, but I want to acknowledge you most of all for knowing what you've been through, um, turning that pain to purpose, learning from all those mistakes, failures, uh, lessons, and bumps along the road, and then doing what you're doing now, helping Thank you, that's very kind, and thank you for all what you're doing as well. <laughs> thank you, buddy. Great. Now, before I let you go, you beautiful, beautiful human, I just want to say I hope that you liked that episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, please make sure that you share it with your friends, your family, anyone that you think or feel will benefit from listening to the story of vulnerability, the story of courage, the story of overcoming struggle. Now, if you haven't already, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you're on Instagram, you already know that you sleep in my fridge, inside joke. And please, if you can, subscribe to us on YouTube or give us that five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever podcast, platform, or app that you use. It'll go a long, long way to helping us make mental health mainstream and getting these stories, these stories of courage, into the mainstream. Thank you all, guys. Ciao.